Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. We will be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, as Mike just read. So as you turn there, I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me recently. And so it was about uh, two weeks ago or so, I was driving, driving north on Harden Road. And uh, all of a sudden, the car that was directly next to me kind of veered into my lane. Not like uh, I, I'm switching lanes suddenly or something like that, but kind of like I've been at a bar at 2 a.m. and I'm just all over the road. And so thankfully, there was a uh, turn lane next to me that I was able to veer into or else this person would have just run right into me. And so I veer off into that other uh, lane and honk the horn. Uh, this then awakens the person to the fact that they have swerved into my lane. So they swerve back into their, to their original lane, just giving me enough time uh, to, to avoid the median that I was about to run into. So I get back into our lane. In this process, the person next to me had slowed down a little bit because uh, all of a sudden they were awake. And, uh, and so I look over at them and, uh, and they... Uh, apparently uh, aren't uh, drunk or anything like that. Apparently, they're just busy, super busy. And I can tell that they are super busy because they have a laptop that is open on their dashboard. And with their right hand, they are doing something on it. And with their left hand, they're holding a phone directly in front of them. So they are actually steering with their, whatever this part is, the forearm there. That's how they're steering. And they're staring at their phone and they're working on a laptop. And so I get next to the person and I look over and I'm just shocked at this. I've talked on the phone before, but I've never like FaceTime Tokyo and written like a novel or something. And, uh, and so I look over at them and I'm just perplexed, perplexed and confused. They then look over at me and and uh, he gives me one of these. That's it. And I, there's worse things he could have done with his finger, but I, I thought, how lazy is that? Like, you literally just about ran me off the road. You nearly left my, uh, my wife without a husband, my kids without a, uh, a father. And yet, this is the way that you show the depth of your sincerity. Just that. That's it. I thought, man, that is real, like... Old Testament sackcloth and ashes, sort of sign of contrition and, uh, and sincerity. Uh, I'm so sorry for running you off the road. Let me show you how much uh, I am sorry. So here's this nearly imperceptible sign to demonstrate the depth of my concern. And so uh, this is what I'm thinking. So I'm thinking as I look at this and I see this guy do this, I'm thinking, okay, now that you've done that, you've totally redeemed yourself, Right. And, uh, and so here's why I mention that story. This guy was so wrapped up in his self. Whatever he's got going on there, whatever he's doing on his computer, whatever he's doing on his phone, I couldn't actually see what he was doing, but he's so blinded to everything else around him that he nearly endangers not only himself, but also those around him. And that's the imagery of our passage this morning. We have been talking about the implication of something we talked about way back in chapter one, that is God is light. And we've seen the outworking of that in regards to Christians are to live in the light. We've seen that in regards to the way that we are to pursue sanctification. And now we see that as an implication of the way that we are to love others. Whereas those who are in the light walk in love toward others, those who are in darkness hate 
is the word that is going to be used. Hate others. They don't see. They're oblivious. They're blind to the needs of others that are around them, and thus they endanger themselves and endanger others, as my buddy in the car did. So let's pray, and then we will dive into the passage together. Ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would uh, give you an undivided heart and mind this morning, that you might be able to block out whatever might potentially distract you and engage with His Word. And then would you take that same prayer and apply it to those around you, your brothers and sisters, strangers, family, whoever it might be that's around you here, that there's this corporate sense that we might be engaged by the Spirit through the Word. And then would you pray for me, for my faithfulness and boldness to proclaim God's Word and nothing else. Father, we ask this morning that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold the glory of your Word. You would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love because you're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, where the author writes, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So John begins by addressing his readers as beloved. Now this, in addition to my little children, which is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, in addition to my little children, beloved is the other major sort of way that John is going to refer to his readers, to the church in, uh, in this letter. Now you might have a translation if you're using something other than the ESV, if you're using the NIV or the uh, New Living Translation, the NLT or the Message or something like that. You might have something that says, my dear friends, or something like that. That's an okay translation. Here's why I don't like that translation. There's actually two reasons why I prefer uh, a translation like the ESV or the NASB that's going to go with beloved. The first reason is because the Greek word is uh, agapitas, agapitas. And you might even know, you might know a little bit of Greek, you might know one of the Greek words for love is agape, and you can hear that in the word for beloved, agapitas. And so that's one of the reasons that I prefer this word beloved, because you see the root word love there in it. A second reason is because of the context. The fact that we are beloved, if you love and trust Jesus, that you are beloved, that that fact that we are loved by God is going to be the impetus for the imperative that we are to love others. As John will say, we love, why? Because He first loved us. Our love is an overflow, an implication of the love that He has for us. In other words, our identity as beloved empowers our obedience to the command to love. So translating the passage as dear friends, although that's not wrong, it misses out on that connotation. It, uh, it misses out on the opportunity for us to see there that our identity is what empowers our obedience. And, uh, and so, he then moves on from there. He's called us beloved. He then says, I am writing you no new commandment. 
Now that ties back to last week's sermon where we talked about all of the commandments that uh, those who love God keep His commandments. We talked about that uh, in depth last week, so go back and listen to that. But John says here he isn't writing a new commandment. He says this is not a new commandment, this is an old commandment, which is really important in light of the context of 1 John. There are these false teachers. We talked about the fact that uh, 1 John is uh, both pastoral and also polemical. It's written as a corrective against this false theology, this heresy that circulated within the early church. And, uh, and so there are these false teachers that are going around spreading these novel new ideas, a novel understanding of Christology that is the doctrine of Christ, a novel understanding of morality, of a Christian's relationship to sin, a novel understanding of what love is. So there's false views of Christ, false views of morality, and false views of love. All of these things are novel, and so John wants to protect against uh, us thinking that he's writing something that is new, something that is novel. Obsession with novelty seemed to be a kind of a cultural virtue within the ancient world. Look at Acts 17, 21. We'll put it up on the screen. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The problem is this isn't just a reflection of ancient culture. This is all the more pervasive today. I'm not sure if it's ignorance of tradition. I'm not sure if it's a disdain for history or what it is, but for whatever reason, it's easier than ever to promote new theologies, new ideas, new theories. Everyone has a platform through Facebook or Twitter or whatever it might be, and unfortunately, this obsession with something that's new isn't just a reflection of lost pagan secular culture. It permeates churches as well. Churches say you have to sing the newest songs. You have to read the newest books by the newest celebrity uh, pastor who has managed to come up with some new idea, some new understanding of Christianity that no one in 2,000 years has ever held. New views on gender roles, new views on human sexuality, new uh, views on what constitutes uh, grounds for divorce and remarriage, new perspectives on race, whatever it might be. But John knows what we actually need is not something new. It's not something novel. What we need is something that is from the beginning, as it says here, an old commandment that you had from the beginning, something historic. This emphasis permeates the New Testament. It's not merely something that you see in 1 John. It saturates Scripture. I'm going to list out a few passages. This is just a handful of passages. I could have thrown these out and given you dozens of others. But listen to the way that the authors of Scripture talk about what is important, not what is novel, what, not what is new, but what is old, what is handed down to us. Jude, verse 3, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, listen to this, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. First Timothy 1, 3 through 4, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Or later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. In other words, what the church needs, what you need, is not something new. It's not something novel. It's not a fresh interpretation of Christianity. What you need is something old something that is passed down to us, truth, tradition, and theology, which has been guarded for millennia by the church. And what is being commanded here in 1 John is not a new commandment. He says it's an old commandment. What is the commandment? As we keep reading, we'll see that the command is love. As John will write elsewhere in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, and this is his commandment. It's twofold, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. By the way, those are just two sides of the same coin. If you truly believe in Jesus, then you will love others. 1 John 4.21, and this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what is the commandment? What is the old commandment that He has given? The old commandment is that we would love. Again, this is not a new commandment. It's not the 11th commandment or something like that. In fact, it's merely the fulfillment of all of the other commandments. That's an idea that we see throughout the Scripture. The Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, the Prophets, the Wisdom Literature, all of those things can be summed up basically with this command to love. Romans 13, 8 through 10. We spent uh, two years in the book of Romans um, uh, uh, a while back. Uh, says this, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Which law? All of the law. Love is the fulfillment. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the commandment. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. Let's keep going. Verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining You know someone who's just really bad at texting? I've got buddies like that. I'll text them something like this question. I will say, would you like to meet at 6 or 7? And how do you think they respond? Yes or sure or something like that. 
And then I ask them the question. I follow up and I say, why don't you just read my entire text and actually respond to the actual text that I'm sending? And their response is, in order to be more efficient. And I think, how is that more efficient? Because now we're having this extended conversation about how inefficient your response actually was. And it's wasted way more time than if you would have just simply put the number six or seven or something. It's actually less time to write uh, six than it is to write sure, whatever it might be. Well, John kind of reminds me of that, right? In verse seven, he went out of his way to say, this isn't a new commandment. But then he gets here to verse eight and he says, but it is a new commandment. It's kind of confusing. On the surface, it sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like double speak. It sounds like it's being inconsistent. Now, he's not being inconsistent. If we just give a little bit of thought to this, we can actually see he's not being inconsistent at all. This is actually really brilliant on John's part. It isn't a new commandment in one sense. That's what he's talking about in verse 7. But it is new in another sense. It isn't new in the sense of the, the, the us never having heard it before, but it is new because Jesus will call it, quote, a new commandment. In the book of uh, John, in the gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So John writes verse 7 to show that it isn't something novel. It isn't a fresh interpretation, but he doesn't want to contradict his gospel. And so he says that it's new in another sense. How so? Why does Christ call it a new commandment, even though the call to love was all throughout the Old Testament? In fact, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is even part of the Mosaic law. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what's so new about the new commandment? I can think of at least three ways. There's a number of different ways. If you read other commentaries, uh, there are uh, multiple different dimensions here, but at least three ways that it is new. And for the sake of alliteration, although this is maybe stretching it a bit, uh, you can think of it as newness in regards to its power, in regards to its population, and in regards to the pattern. That's what's new about it. The, uh, the power, the population, and the pattern. It's new in regards to a new power. Part of what's new about the new covenant in general is that God empowers His people to obey His commands in a unique new way. So we have the Spirit to obey the commands that God has given in a way that is unlike what Israel as a whole possessed in the Old Testament. If you love and trust Jesus now, then you have the Holy Spirit, and thus you have the ability, you are empowered to actually act upon this. So that's a new aspect of this command, a new power. It's also new in regards to, uh, again, this is a stretch, but population, the, the, the perimeters, the parameters of the command. In the Old Testament, it's clear that you are to love your neighbor, but Jesus gives us this new understanding of who our neighbor is, not merely Jews, but Samaritans and other Gentiles, not merely Christians, but unbelievers as well. So it's new in its dimension, in the population, in the people that we are to, uh, to love. Our passage today is going to, to really only deal with love within the church, but the entirety of Scripture says that we are not merely to love our family and friends and those who are like us in terms of our belief in Jesus Christ, but indeed the world. We are to love 
everyone, even our enemies. So the dimensions, the boundaries of love are somewhat new. And then lastly, it's also new in regards to the pattern, or maybe you might say the picture of love. When Jesus gives the command in John 13, does anyone know what's happening there? What does Jesus do in John 13? He's washing His disciples' feet. So you have this picture of what love actually entails. It's this life of service. But not merely is John 13 to be read in isolation. John 13 is read in light of the climax of the the gospel of John leading to the crucifixion of Christ. That is the picture of love. Love is service and love is sacrifice. So we have this new pattern, this new picture of what love entails. Love entails selflessness, laying down yourself for the sake of those that you love, sacrificing yourself and serving them. That is love. So there's this new depth of meaning in regards to the picture, the pattern of love that we see. So in at least these three ways, the power, the population, and the pattern, the command to love is new. And he says, this is true because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, the gospel is like a, uh, a dimmer switch on a light, and it's progressively increasing in strength with the ultimate result being the complete defeat of darkness in the blinding light of the sun of God. And, and John uses this really strong language to show the inevitability of that eventual result. Do you remember when you were maybe in, uh, in high school or junior high or something like that, uh, when you learned about acids and bases? All right, the difference between acid and base, they're just on polar opposite ends of the pH uh, spectrum, the pH scale. But what happens when you take a base and you add it to an acid? They neutralize, right? They cancel each other out. They kind of balance each other out. So you might be tempted to think of the two kingdoms like that. You have this kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You have light and you have darkness. If that's how you understand this duality that's going on in 1 John, you're going to completely miss it, right? When you add base to an acid, they neutralize each other. What happens when you add light to darkness? The darkness just dissipates. It just goes away. There's no competition that exists there. Likewise, there is no competition between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of uh, the enemy, Light and darkness, though they are polar opposites, they're not equal and opposite forces. They're mutually exclusive. Where there is light, there is no darkness, for darkness is called the privation, the absence of light. So the light of Christ, the light of the gospel is already shining, and thus darkness's uh, defeat is assured, but you also have this eschatological ring to the text. This promise of an ultimate day when darkness will be finally defeated and all that will be left will be light. So you have this kind of already but not yet you see here. The light has come, but not fully and finally, so we wait for that day. Let's keep going. Verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. I want you to think for a second of John as the Tim Hollis of New Testament authors, all right? 
So uh, John is the Tim Hollis, that's our worship minister, uh, of New Testament authors. Zach is kind of like Paul. He's super logical, super rational. He's also a little bit like Peter because he's moody and impetuous, all right? Carl is kind of like James. He's kind of like a wise old grandfather. Jared is like the the author of Hebrews because no one really knows who he is. But John is like... Tim. Tim is Mr. Extreme. I don't know if you know Tim or not, but he is Mr. Extreme. He'll come into the office and yell. By the way, he never whispers. He doesn't have an inside voice or an indoor voice or anything like that. He doesn't possess it at all. He will come into the office and he will yell. He will scream, guys, this is crazy. He always says guys and he always says crazy. It's like his favorite word or something like that. For everything. How was that funeral, man? Crazy. How was that burrito? Crazy. That's his favorite word. He always speaks in absolutes. Everything is either the absolute best or the absolute worst. There's nothing in between. Well, that's kind of like John. John is this book where he's writing in these extremes. He's showing these polar opposites. He's writing in in regards to these really strong contrasts. So you see it, darkness versus light. You see it in regards to love versus hate. And then you see it in truth versus lies. This permeates the book of 1 John. John presents these strong contrasts in order to clarify that there are these two paths, that there are these two kingdoms, and they cannot coincide. They cannot overlap. On team light, there is truth and there is love. On team darkness, there is falsehood and there is hatred. And just like Tim, there is no overlap in between them. Now, this can be really confusing if you're reading this book and you misunderstand, because it seems like John is saying, therefore, that Christians never sin, that Christians never lie, that Christians never fail to love. That's not what this means. Reading the text this way, devoid of the overall context, would lead us to condemnation. That's not what this is talking about. Imagine that you have someone whom you despise. Maybe it's an ex-spouse who cheated on you. Maybe it's a parent who abused you. Maybe it's a bully who picked on you in high school or whatever it might be. And so you read this book and you think, I would love to love that person, but I really struggle with this. So I guess if I don't really love that person, then I hate them. And therefore, I guess I must not be a Christian. And you go away despairing. You go away feeling depressed and condemned. You think, I guess this means I walk in darkness and I'm not a Christian. Is that what John is saying? No, that's not what he's saying. We talked about this at the beginning of the chapter regarding sin and sanctification, that tension that you see there. John says, I have written this so that you may not sin. But he also says... But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation. He tells us if we do sin, we have an advocate. So it's not sinlessness that John promotes, but sanctification. Likewise, in regards to love, it's not a perfect conception of love that John says marks Christians. Instead, it's the pursuit of love. It's the path towards love. It's the desire for love. It's the desire to repent where we find that we are indifferent. 
So it's not sinlessness, but sanctification. So it's not the absolute perfection of love, but merely the pursuit of love that uh, John is talking about. So what do you do if you hate someone? You're reading this passage. You said, I hate my brother. I guess I'm still in the darkness. What do you do if you hate someone? Don't just wallow in despair. That's not the way that you read 1 John. Instead, what do you do? You repent. You pray for grace. You try to pray for the person that you despise or that you're indifferent toward or that is annoying to you or whatever it might be. You take a baby step toward forgiveness. You get some counseling. You talk to others. Don't just remain apathetic and complacent. John is not claiming that Christians are perfect, but he is saying that they are marked by contrition and repentance, by a desire to walk in love toward others. Bear in mind the context. We'll come back to this over and over and over again. The context of 1 John, we've continued to talk about. One of John's primary purposes in writing this letter is to help believers have assurance of salvation by giving these various litmus tests, these various ways of assessing whether or not we really love Jesus. And then also whether or not there are areas of our life, uh, even as people who do love Jesus, where we need to repent. We talked about this last week. Uh, Zach gave a great uh, analogy about how do we distinguish a wolf uh, or a sheep from a wolf in sheep's clothing? Well, you listen to them, all right? They make different distinct sounds. Are they bleating or are they howling? And then you watch what they eat. Are they eating grass or are they eating other sheep? And then you watch how they interact with the flock. Are they attacking other sheep? Likewise, John is going to give us these three litmus tests for helping to assess our identity. Are we actually Christians? And the answer is not found in whether you could answer these questions perfectly, but whether or not there is a baseline desire to walk in light of them. The first is a theological test. Do you believe the right things about Christ? The second is a moral test. Do you have the right response to sin? Are you walking in confession and repentance and pursuing sanctification? And the third is social, and that's what we see in this passage. Do you love others? Do you desire to love others? So one of the tests, the proofs of your claim to be in the light, if you claim to love Christ, the proof of that The proof that you know God is a growing commitment to love others and a growing repentance for where that love is lacking. Let's look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of John, you might recognize there is an allusion here in, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, all the way back to uh, John's gospel. Abide is a word that, uh, that we see uh, throughout the New Testament, but in particular, it's concentrated in, uh, in John's writing, in Johannine literature. It's a favorite term of John. Two-thirds of all of the uses that you see in the New Testament actually occur in uh, either John's gospel or in, uh, in John's epistles. And a large number of them are actually bunched together in just one chapter. John chapter 15, verse 4, uh, we'll read that, "'Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me.'" John 15, 9 through 10, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Hopefully you see an illusion there between what's going on in John 15 and what's happening in 1 John chapter 2. John anticipates, he expects for you when you're reading 1 John 2 to think, oh, that reminds me of something. What is it? Oh yeah, John chapter 15, where Jesus says there's no greater love than that someone would lay down their life. So we see how light and love overlap, which makes sense because this is a book that contains these two major big theological statements about the nature and character of God. The first we've seen already, God is light. The second one we'll deal with in a few months, God is love. And those things fit together. So if we abide in God, then we thus abide in the light and thus we walk in love. That's the point that John is making. And notice the second half of the verse. It says, in him there is no cause for stumbling. could be translated as in him, as in the person who walks in the light, or it could be translated as in it, that is the light itself. There is no cause for stumbling. The, 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 the difference is somewhat inconsequential. What's that mean, though? Well, the word here translated as stumbling is scandalon, in Greek. What English word does that remind you of? Scandal. It's actually where we get the, uh, the English word uh, scandal. And it typically refers to being tempted or enticed or seduced toward sin. So John is doing a bit of wordplay here. Now, probably every one of us in this room knows someone who's just super clumsy, right? I had a buddy who once spilt coffee on me in Starbucks and he said, that's the second cup of coffee that I've spilt today. And then I went to the office where he also worked, and uh, as I was walking in the front door, I noticed a cup of coffee there, and I went into his office, and I said, did you spill that cup of coffee? He said, yeah, three cups of coffee before 9 a.m. That's got to be some sort of record. So we all know people who are clumsy, who stumble in the light, all right? That's not John's point. John's point is not in the light, no one ever stumbles, Again, just like he doesn't say, if you're a Christian, you never sin. His point is, in the light, there is nothing that necessarily causes stumbling. And that's not true for the darkness. Who here has toddlers, right? You have toddlers, they leave their stuff out all the time. They leave their little Minnie Mouse airplane or they leave their Legos out. There's all kinds of stumbling in the darkness because you can't see where you're going. That's John's point here. How does this relate to love? Well, the person who loves does not put a stumbling block in the path of another. The person who loves someone else doesn't push them down or trip them up or something like that. As we move through 1 John, we're going to see various expressions of love. Again, 1 John is a very cyclical sort of book, so we're going to come back to love over and over. We're going to view it kind of like a prism. We're going to view it prism. We're going to view it from different perspectives, different angles. And, uh, and so we'll see various expressions of love, but given the context of this passage, I want us to consider one particular expression of love that you might not think about as often, and that is that love doesn't cause another to stumble. Let me put it another way. Love doesn't entice someone else to sin. Love doesn't entice someone else to sin. This could not be more pertinent considering how far apart, how vastly different the biblical conception of love is versus the cultural conception of love.
Love doesn't entice another to sin, but we have to define the word love according to God's standard, and we have to define the word sin according to God's standard. Think about the implications of this. The person who encourages their friend to act upon their homosexual desires thinks that they are really being loving. I'm telling this person to act upon the way that God created them. I'm being loving. As is the boy who engages in premarital sex with the girl that he really loves. Or the parent who encourages their child to indulge in their gender confusion. Or the parent who refuses to discipline their kid and they think, I'm just being loving. I'm just being gracious. Or the counselor or the pastor who encourages divorce in the overwhelming majority of cases. Or the spouse who who decides that divorce is the most loving option for the sake of their family. On and on we could go with all of these different cultural expectations of love that would actually be biblical expressions of hate. In all of these cases, the person thinks that they are walking in love, but biblically they're enticing someone else towards sin and thus acting in hate, walking in darkness, blind to what Scripture actually says, which is again talk about what we talked about before, which is again why we need to hold to the teaching and traditions of Scripture in order to assess what is actually loving. You and I don't innately, naturally know what is loving. God has to reveal that to us, and He has done so in His Word. This is a problem. This is the problem with a lot of Christianity today. Our command is to love, not necessarily to be nice and polite and politically correct and kind as culture would define those things. Sometimes love is outright offensive as it pushes someone out of the way of a stumbling block. Those who are in the light love others as God defines love and don't entice them to sin as God defines sin. That's the point here. Let's keep going. Last verse, verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When I was growing up, there were a number of things that I absolutely hated. I hated uh, having my picture taken, not because of any sort of vanity, although I am vain, but the reason was because my dad was a photographer And so it was always like professional pictures. We were never really satisfied unless the picture turned out perfectly. And he always had a camera. And so we always had our picture taken. I hated sour cream. I still do to this day. I hated those little pieces of fake cheese that come in plastic sleeves because it's not real cheese. I didn't like that. I hated those monkeys from The Wizard of Oz that fly around. I hated the movie and the never-ending story. I hated all of these things. But I could never actually say that I hated them because hate was a four-letter word. It's still a four-letter word, just a different type of four-letter word. It was like a curse word when I was growing up. I wasn't allowed to say that I hated anything because it carries this connotation. We tend to think of it as being this extreme, inappropriate, intense, passionate disdain, this dislike for something, this very active sort of seething bitterness. Now, the Bible actually tells us to hate certain things. I won't bring that up to my mom today, but evil, falsehood, perverted speech, so forth. The Bible actually commands you to hate certain things. So there's appropriate expressions. There's times when it's appropriate to say, I hate something, but that's not my point. My point is simply 
that we tend to think of hate as being this extreme dislike and disdain, this seething bitterness and resentment and so forth. And if that's your understanding of hate, then it's really easy for you to dismiss most of this entire passage that we're talking about today, about hating our brothers and sisters. You might think, I don't hate anyone. If that's your understanding of hate, that might be true. You're not down in your basement putting on copious amounts of lipstick, throwing darts at someone's face on your like blacklisted wall of shame or something like that. If that's what that all, that's the only thing that hate means, then yeah, you don't hate. The problem is that's not the only thing that hate means. Biblically, hate isn't always marked by this extreme, intense disdain and disgust and burning resentment, as darkness is the absence of light. So hate is just the absence of love. I'm going to say that again. As darkness is just the absence of light, so hate is just the absence of love. In a sense, anyone you don't love, you hate. Sometimes the symptoms of hate are obvious. Again, that caricature of someone down in their basement with their wall of shame, their wall of hatred, their wall of disgust is really clear. But for most people, hatred is a much more subtle thing. It isn't marked by constant obsessive thoughts. Rather, it's marked by the exact opposite of that. It's marked by indifference, apathy, lack of concern, carelessness. Remember the guy in the car from the opening illustration? He hated me. I don't know, he didn't know my name, probably. Maybe he was one of y'all and tried to run me off the road, but probably he didn't know my name. He was just completely indifferent to my existence. In fact, this indifference is exactly like what we'll see as we get into chapter 3, and he talks about love and hatred again. We'll see that hatred in that context is just indifference. It's callousness. It's being apathetic. It's a deaf ear, a blind eye to the needs of others. This is why Augustine, the the great patron saint of the church, and many others after him, the Puritans and Reformers, describe sin as being turned or curved inward. It's being self-focused. It's being narcissistic. See, what sin does is it warps, it distorts our affections away from God and away from others, and it turns it inward. That's why the great commandment, by the way, is to love God and love others. In other words, why don't you take your focus, which is directed at yourself, and redirect it upward and outward? Our love is naturally, as a result of sin, as a result of our natural, innate, fallen condition, our love is naturally directed inward. What the gospel does is it takes it and it begins to turn it, like those jaws of life that a a fireman might use to, to remove a door. It begins to turn it. That's what's happening here. So rather than asking the question, whether you hate anyone. The better question for application of this text is, do you actually love others? The biblical command is not just, thou shalt not hate. The biblical command is actually, thou shalt love. So, do you love others? That's the question of this text. Do you selflessly serve and sacrifice for others? Yes, for your spouse. Yes, for your kids. Yes, for your biological family, and so forth but also for your church, for those in your community group, 
And by implication beyond that, for your co-workers, for your neighbors, even for your enemies. And as mentioned today, as an expression of that, do you manifest that love by speaking the truth as defined by Scripture rather than relying on what feels loving and gracious or what culture says is tolerant and kind? That's the application of the text today, that you would love others. So as we conclude, I just want to mention three different ways to hear this passage and three different responses. Two are inappropriate, and the third is appropriate. After you've interacted with 1 John 2, 7 through 11, you could walk away and say one of three things. The first is just to say, I don't hate anyone, so this text doesn't really apply to me. I'm not really going to do the hard work of struggling and wrestling with whether or not I'm indifferent or apathetic toward others. I'm not going to really ask whether or not I'm walking in love. I'm just going to move on. You just want me, right now, you just want me to stop talking so you can go to lunch. Maybe you even hate me in that biblical sense. That's one way to read this. I don't hate anyone. I'm just going to move on because I have this understanding of what hate is, and therefore, I'm not going to allow the text to press upon me. The second way is to read this and to just be undone. You hang your head in shame and despair. You mumble to yourself, well, I I guess I don't love as I should, so I must not be a believer. You know you don't love as you should, and yet rather than running to Christ with that insufficiency, inadequacy, you just give in to despair and walk away feeling condemned. The third way to read this text is actually the only appropriate way of all of these options. That is to hear this passage as a critique. This should have critiqued everyone in this room. You should have thought of examples of people that you don't love, people that you actually hate, and this biblical sense of indifference and callousness and apathy or whatever it might be. And so you hear this as a critique, but not a critique that leads you to condemnation, but rather that leads you to conviction. Because conviction leads to repentance, to confession of sin, to hope in Christ, that you would run toward Christ and not away. So those who read this way will confess, yes, I don't love others as I should. Yes, there is a sense in which I hate my brother or sister, but also recognize that they are beloved, that they have been loved. And so by grace, they are empowered to repent of their apathy, to repent of their indifference, to repent of their callousness and by grace to walk in love. That's my hope for us this morning. Let's pray for the grace to love as the men come forward to service communion. Father, I just confess in my own heart that there are uh, thousands upon thousands of ways that I don't love others as I should. That I don't love Casey or Larkin or Cannon as I should, that I don't love the elders of this church or the staff or the deacons or the other members of the church to the degree that I should, that I don't love my neighbors and co-workers and on and on we could go. And yet at the same time, Lord, I'm not condemned by that reality. I'm hopeful because Your grace is sufficient for me and it beckons me to repentance and it empowers me to obedience. And so I pray for the grace to walk in love. And I pray that not only for myself, but Lord, I pray that over our congregation, Lord, that we would be a church that is marked by love toward others, that we might walk in light of the light of the gospel. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.